Hello, and welcome back to Behind the Switch. I'm Andrew Grandall. A few weeks ago, my co-host Spencer Fields went out to Los Angeles to present on a recently published report from Synapse Energy Economics titled Clean Energy for Los Angeles. We recently sat down to talk about what he learned as a co-author of the study and from his time in LA meeting with utility workers, community advocates, and local politicians. Our conversation hit on several major topics, from the details behind a renewable-powered LA, to the nature of energy demand curves, to why new nuclear power is growing increasingly difficult to commission, and much more. I learned a lot from this conversation, and I hope you do as well. Let's listen in. Spencer, you went to LA a few weeks ago, didn't you? I sure did. Can you tell me about that a little bit? Yeah, it was great. I went on behalf of our clients, Food and Water Watch, to present our new report about Clean Energy for Los Angeles. It's a report that looks at what it would take to actually get Los Angeles uh, to 100% renewable energy by 2030. So powering all of the city's electric needs by exclusively renewable energy by 2030. That's pretty well. Yeah, it was pretty cool. It was a really neat idea for a report, um, first and foremost. And I think second, it it was fun to be able to be out there and actually present on it. Yeah. So you had multiple presentations you had to do, right? I did have multiple presentations, yeah. So we wrote the report for, again, Food and Water Watch, and they have been engaged in um, a working group with Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, which is the municipal utility in Los Angeles. And so um, this utility, just to give you a bit of background, meets more annual energy need than 13 entire states Um, I guess I should say individual, not, you know, 13 cumulatively, but but 13 individual states. The city of Los Angeles is 4 million people, which would alone would make that city the like 28th largest state in the country. The county itself um, has 10 million people. It's really, when you're talking about this utility, you're talking about a pretty massive um, amount of people and a massive amount of energy served. But in any event... Um, yeah, so we, we provided that the utility, Los Angeles Department of Water Power, um, is required by the city council to actually study and analyze what it would take to get to a 100% renewable future. And so the utility has been, you know, sort of spinning their wheels on this study for a little while. They're currently saying that the final study will be published, excuse me, in 2020, 2021, something like that. And it's like, well, that's not really soon enough. Yeah. Um, and so Food and Water Watch have been um, engaged as stakeholders in the working group. And so that meant that we uh, got a chance to actually meet with some of the staff members at the um, power planning resource procurement yeah. side of the utility, which was cool. really interesting. So that was the first presentation, was sort of a walkthrough of the report and its findings and our um, assumptions and methodology and you know yeah. how we modeled the region and all of that with actual utility staff members. The yeah. second presentation was a little press call, which was cool. There's There should be. Um, there have been a few articles written about the report so far. It sounds like there are a few more that are on their way. Um, actually spoke to somebody from Utility Dive the other day, which is pretty cool. interesting. And then the third one was actually for uh, for Food and Water Watch staff, for advocates in the area, for sort of interested parties, and also actually the uh, city council member who introduced the bill to require uh, DWP to, to analyze 100% was there, and he spoke, and he actually stuck around for the whole presentation, which was pretty cool. His name is Council Member Bonin. 
I believe. Cool. So 100% renewables, does that include nuclear power? No, it doesn't. Um, nor does it include biopower or biomass or landfill gas. In fact, uh, we, we, you know, a lot of people define renewable energy differently. So yeah. you can talk about it. Um, I think, you know, some, there's, there's always a struggle to, to define clean energy and renewable energy. And a lot of times clean energy means non-emitting energy mm-hmm. or, or generation that is, that is produced electricity that is generated without emitting carbon dioxide is often sort of rolled into clean energy. So right. that regularly includes nuclear energy, but we wanted to look at, um, just renewable energy and not biomass landfill gas. There have been some papers um, written, including uh, one by some former Synapse employees, looking at the lifetime impacts of biomass and whether or not you could, should actually include it um, yeah. as renewable and sort of what the how you should account for it in um, like emissions accounting right. systems. So instead, we only look at wind, solar, hydro, and geothermal. Cool. Um, and so certainly, you, as you can imagine, um, you also need storage mm-hmm. for, when, for when the sun isn't shining and when the wind isn't blowing to right. sort of balance the generation um, with the load. Um, and then you also have demand response and energy efficiency. Right. So um, I know that LA has been investing in battery storage over the last few years, right? They have been, and yeah. California is upping their requirements as a state. Is LA doing, is LA doing things separate from the state of California to kind of up their, like what does that game look like for them in terms of the next decade of storage? What how what are their ambitions? Totally. So so in the most recent integrated resource plan that uh, DWP put out, so an integrated resource plan is sort of a ten to twenty year utility resource plan that utilities go through a very long process of trying to do their due diligence to say, okay, what do we need to focus on in the near term to meet near term needs? And also where do we think trends are going to be in the future so that we can start planning for those now, whether that means, um, you know, beginning to build more renewable energy because we're going to need it either to replace retiring fossil load or because of, you know, statutory uh, renewable portfolio standards and targets and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in, in uh, Los Angeles DWP's uh, most recent integrated resource plan, they were calling for, I believe it's 440 megawatts of storage um, over their planning horizon, which I believe goes to 2036. Okay. Um, so in terms of what the next decade holds, you know, it's sort of incremental steps along the way to that. But it's important to point out that... Um, the region actually just installed about 100 megawatts. I think it was uh, the biggest installation, I believe, was 70 megawatts that's already online, and I think there there are a few more um, storage units coming up as well. In response to uh, some issues with the Aliso Canyon natural gas storage facility. So what happened there? So I don't have the full details of what happened there, but I think ultimately this sort of emergency procurement of storage was a result of a leak at the storage facility, Mm. Mm. um, which then meant that it couldn't provide sort of the... Reliable. Yeah, well, some would say that it's never, or that it hasn't been providing the reliability needs that it it should be or that it claims to, but 
that's neither here nor there, and I don't have the full story on that. I think if you want that, you should check out Food and Water Watch's website. They have a lot of really great policy briefs on that cool. exact issue, the Aliso Canyon storage facility. But in any event, as a result of sort of this shortage situation, this leak, Governor Brown in California called for, signed an emergency order to procure battery energy storage. So mm-hmm. not not more gas storage, none of that, but actual battery energy storage. Right. Um to try to mitigate the sort of emergency and the risk. Yeah. And um, a couple couple respondents came in and submitted bids for um, to, to actually build storage. And one of them was Tesla, um, for instance. And they, they ended up building 70 megawatts of, I believe, of utility-scale battery energy storage in like well under six months. I think it was closer to three months. Yeah. Um, so that was pretty cool to see that it's, you know, I think Southern California, um, SoCal Edison, for instance, was one of the first utilities to actually um, award an RFP to battery energy storage. So it's, it's definitely sort of the, the, the center of the states in terms of what, what um, of innovation possible. and what's yeah. possible and, and, and seeing, seeing this technology deployed on a larger utility scale. Yeah, and that's what's so cool about this report and about what they're actually doing in California is uh, for years people have been, you know, we've called malarkey on this, but saying, well, you can't scale, you can't run the world off of renewables. And, you know, when you have an economy the size of L.A. County or of California, which I believe is has the sixth largest GDP in the world, if it were a country, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think Southern California alone is like 15th yeah. in it's the a, world. It's, it's, it's insane. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, this is obviously disproving that. And then I think to see this done without nuclear is even more cool because we keep hearing, well, we need nuclear to bridge the gap and that, this and that. But then I'm reading about how nuclear simply, new nuclear facilities particularly are not economical and it's not a realistic or reasonable investment. I don't know if you can elaborate on that a little bit, but for me, it was super cool to see just clean, non-emitting renewable energy that is not biomass and not nuclear. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think, um, you know, it's been hard to build new nuclear resources anywhere in the world after Fukushima disaster. Sure. I think that when you look at California in particular's history with uh, with nuclear generation um, and the San Onofre generating mm-hmm. units, which are frequently referred to as the songs units, mm-hmm. um, which were like sighted on a fault line and, and we're right on the coast. And I think they had, you know, the, there's, there's a lot of history with that plant. Um, yeah. And so I think that there is a, there are a lot of barriers to new nuclear. Right. Um, I don't think that they're just safety issues. I think that if you build to the highest and, and most modern standard possible, the nuclear units are very safe. Yeah. In terms of how they're operated, in terms of um, how they're run, I think there's still an issue for what you do with the storage of spent fuel rods. That's right. never going to go away. Tailing ponds. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But in terms of the overall costs, yeah. New nuclear is just uneconomic to build. And I think I think we've seen that. And unfortunately, ratepayers in the southeast of the states are going to begin to feel the impact of this mm. because of what happened with the summer plant and the um, the Vogel plant um, mm. in Georgia and South Carolina. Right. Where 
both you know the the utilities there tried to build these massive new nuclear units. Um, they went over budget. They experienced tons and tons of delays, and ultimately, I believe at the moment, both of them have sort of said, no, we're not, we're not going to ever be able to complete this. And now one of the, the utilities involved with building it is trying to recover the costs that they sunk into this plant from right, rate from payers, right. that they're for a generation that they're never actually going to receive from nuclear. And, you know, there, there certainly was a time when nuclear generation was, you know, too cheap to, to yeah. meter. Yeah. That is no longer the case for, for a number of different reasons, but the construction costs alone are prohibitively expensive at this point. Totally. So, so we certainly were not going to rely upon the assumption that you could build new nuclear in this. In right. terms of retiring existing nuclear, I think that makes sense from, from a resource age perspective. You know, mm. these power plants are oftentimes 60, 70, 80 years old, and they were built to only run for maybe 40, maybe 60 years. And yeah. so I think there's, there's this very important conversation to be had about, well, it's, you know, just because it's there and it's and it's been built, should we continue to operate it yeah. indefinitely, uh, or should we begin to say, okay, this has run its useful course and you know exceeded what everybody expected for its useful life expectancy? Right. Now should we move on to other other resources? I think I think to your point though about nuclear being a bridge, sort of fuel um, yeah. or, or source for generation and renewable generation not being able to sort of pick up the gap. One thing that I found very interesting about talking to the utility staff in Los Angeles was that on their peak day last summer, mm -hmm. in their peak hour, so the, the... Peak of the peak. The peak of the peak, the hour of highest demand on the day with the greatest demand of the year, yeah. they said that they were only receiving 15% of their generation from renewable resources. Okay. On an annual basis, they receive 30% of their generation from renewable resources. So to them, that means that on their, in their peak hour, they said, well, if you're saying, you know, this is what you need to get to 100% renewables, we're saying to get wow. to 100%, you actually need 200% renewables because, because it's only going to provide... If it's based <laughs> off of the peak load. Right. But in fact, what our report found mm -hmm. was that you don't even need to build that much more renewable capacity than has to be built to meet current renewable portfolio standards within oh. the state. So Los Angeles has, the, the California as a state has a target to meet 50% of need with renewable energy in 2030. Right. Los Angeles is, uh, is actually 55% by 2030 because I believe it's 65% by 2036. So okay. that trajectory is a little bit higher than, than the state as a whole. Right. So just to meet those needs, DWP is going to be required to build a certain amount of renewable generation and sort of shift 55% of their annual generation to renewables by 2030, no matter what. Regardless right. of our study, regardless of what they say, that is a statutory, obligated. yes, yeah. they're legally obligated to do this. And our report found that to reach 100% renewables, you don't need to build any more renewable capacity. You need to build more storage capacity. Uh, you need to invest more in energy efficiency right. and in demand response. Mm -hmm. But doing those things, now you've brought down the overall peak. So yeah. on that hottest day of the summer, or, or whatever it is, in the hottest hour, in the warmest hour, at the, 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 the hour of the highest load of the year yeah. is now 
however much lower, it's 10, 15% lower than it would have been but for investments in energy efficiency. Right. Now you invest more in demand response. Now you can either shift the load to a less intensive hour mm-hmm. or you can curtail it all together for that certain day. And there are just, demand response yeah. programs that exist for at the commercial and industrial level and at the residential level. There are a lot of companies that have been doing this for a long time. You can think of a Converge, you can think of an Enernoc, um, that have yeah. been involved in California. And California is one of the states um, and markets where demand response programs are sort of most... Uh, robustly tested, I will say. Not yeah. that they've not that they've sort of hit the, the economic penetration level of demand response. They still have a ways to go, but in terms of they have a lot of experience right. with demand response. And then the third aspect of this is storage. Right. So now instead of only having renewable resources generating at half of their potential capacity during the peakiest hour of the year, well, now you're taking all of the generation from solar that was generated earlier in the day when load wasn't as high, right. and you're storing it. And then now you're putting it back onto the grid. So in fact, it's... When demand is high. When demand is high, yeah. exactly. And so, in fact, you, d- you don't need to get to 200% renewables. And, in, in, yeah. and it's really, you almost don't even need to get to 100% of the capacity that you would expect to be associated right. with renewable energy. What you need is to efficiently optimize and balance when that generation is stored and then dispatched back onto the grid. And and, um, that's really the crux of this report is that you don't need to build any more renewable capacity than you need to already by 2030. What you need to do is to dispatch it more efficiently and store it for use later. So you can use the wind energy generated at three in the morning when demand is low at five o'clock p.m. the next Precisely. afternoon when it's Precisely. High. And I think that's one of the things people um, are starting to understand more about the renewable aspect. It's not just a matter of more solar panels. The difference between a lump of coal and a solar cell is that that lump of coal is storing that energy until it's time to burn and dispatch that energy. Yeah. But the thing that's been prohibitive for utility-scale renewables is storing that energy, and this battery revolution is solving that. Certainly, and I, and I don't know anywhere that's run into that as a problem so far, mm-hmm. because there's nowhere in the country, certainly, that has a high enough level of renewable generation that they've run into the issue of like too much of of too much. There are yeah. places where wind is curtailed and there are places where solar is curtailed, but that's I'm going to go out on a limb, but I'm going to say that that's mostly due to transmission issues. That's mm. not that's not because there's like too much renew too, you know too many renewables on the grid, too much renewable capacity on the grid. Yeah. What it's about is sort of other other constraints on the system. Yeah. But as you get to higher levels of renewable penetration on the system, then you definitely start having to engage with this question and answer this question of, okay, well, what are we going to do? do with the solar generation that is that is produced at 11 a.m., you know, noon, 1 p.m., 2, yeah. before the peak hour of 3 or after you account for behind-the-meter solar in energy efficiency, maybe a peak at five or seven or whatever it is. So, right. so now solar is only producing at a much lower level. And how do you, how do you then balance, balance the generation with the demand? Because, because at the moment, the way that the grid is designed is so that all of the generation can be, the generating units can be turned on to mirror precisely the, the, sh- the shape of demand throughout the day. If you think about what sort of a daily 
load shape looks like. In most places, it looks more or less like a bell curve, mm-hmm. uh, certainly in, in summer months. So yeah. at night, it's very low, and then it sort of starts to ramp up as people wake up in the morning and they you know make coffee and you know make some breakfast, and then as people get into work and turn on the lights and turn on you know air conditioners and things like that, right. it keeps growing until it sort of peaks in the middle of the day when all the lights are on, all the air conditioning units are on, and it's the hottest outside or whatever the case right. may be. And then the bell curve begins to gradually decline. There's often a little blip at 6 or 7 p.m. as people get home from work and turn on all of their appliances at home. And then it keeps going down yeah. throughout the night. And then it sort of levels off at the same same um, point as the previous night. And so today, you can turn on generators when you want, when you need them, to, to sort of meet that demand. That's mm-hmm. how the grid was designed. There are a lot of caveats to that in terms of well, are you actually turning on generators when you need them or do they have minimum run times and minimum downtime? So for instance, it takes a certain amount of time to spin up a coal unit right. um, and to get it going. And once you turn it off, it has to stay off for a certain amount of time. Mm. So are you just spinning it, waiting for demand to come back on and then you're like flipping the switch to put that onto the grid? Or are you, yeah. or, or are you actually turning it on and turning it off every time demand goes up and goes down. And that costs more maintenance. Natural gas units are better at that than coal units are, which is partially why, um, in addition to low natural gas prices, coal has been pushed out of markets in a lot of places because they've been asked to sort of perform more of this ramping, and they're not suited for that. They're meant to just be turned on and run all the time. Nuclear units are like that too. They're meant to be turned on and run for six months straight before they have to refuel. And that's it. And you're not supposed to... Turn them up, turn them down, nothing. It's not a light switch. It's not a light switch. And so, you know, there's a question of whether or not, like, the grid actually operates the way that it's supposed to, but that's that's sort of the paradigm under which the grid was currently designed. Right. But when you start talking about renewable generation, we don't decide when the sun is shining, we don't decide when the wind is blowing, but we are very capable of forecasting when those things will be happening. Right. But they don't tend to mirror when demand is. And right. that's, that's where the, this big issue is of like, well, what do you do when, you know, at night when there's, there's load and, and the sun isn't shining? Or what do you do at 7 p.m. when the wind isn't blowing and the sun has stopped shining? And, and, and mm-hmm. that's when people are getting home from work and turning on all their appliances. And now you have a, a peakier load. So that's where storage and the demand response come into play is now you can actually begin to shape your generation to the demand curve right of that clean energy yeah um the last thing i want to ask you about is with these with the synapse report i'd imagine it's quite difficult to project right now what the proliferation of distributed generation and net metering and such will will look like going forward but i'd imagine it's only going to expand and and i'm curious if you did you include that in these projections as part of this landscape as it evolves or is it more just mostly utility scale projects yeah, so that's a great question. We actually ran two separate scenarios. We okay. ran one that focused on more of an expansion of utility-scale solar, and we focused on one that was more an expansion of um, distributed cool. solar. So Mayor Garcetti in Los Angeles, yep. under his administration, the city produced um, the Sustainable City Plan. And mm-hmm. if you're looking at, for it, you'll notice that plan is lowercase p, capital L, capital A, lowercase n, because, you know, it's uh, LA. And it's, I see yeah. what they did there. But the Sustainable City Plan points out that, you know, there's, I believe it's around 
five and a half gigawatts of potential distributed solar wow. you know, capacity within Los Angeles just because of all the rooftops and all the people who live there. And I'm pretty sure the region gets like, it was either like 260 or 300 days of sun right. um, per year. So, so you're talking about, you know, whether it's utility scale or it's distributed scale, you're talking about a really, really wonderful resource in this area. Right. Um, and a very economic resource in this area. In terms of, in terms of whether or not we sort of engage with this de- decision of, well, are you going to build a utility scale or distributed scale? We did to the extent that we ran two different scenarios, one that focused on utility scale solar and one that focused on more distributed scale solar that began to sort of approach some of the capacity that the sustainable cities plan said was potential yeah. and possible within the city. In terms of net metering, we didn't really talk about that at all, but there is a very big question about how um, you design net metering policies, whether or not you allow it, what the credits are to different people and how, mm. you know, like right. how, how that flows to rate pairs. There's also, as you begin to get to that level of penetration of distributed scale solar, now you really need to start making sure that there it doesn't become an um, an environmental justice issue, um, because mm. oftentimes the first neighborhoods to install solar panels are more affluent neighborhoods yep. where people all own their houses yep. and have some sort of capital laying away that they can then use to purchase these solar panels. Low income neighborhoods are very often left behind by these because people may not have enough savings to pay for uh solar panels Mm -hmm. is is one potential and also because a lot of people are frequently uh renters and it's hard to as a renter get solar panels on your rooftop so i think there's there's definitely going to need to be um either some policy action or some you know some discussion about, well, how do you influence property owners to put solar panels on their their buildings, and how do you make sure that the benefits of that flow through to their tenants? Right, in terms of, in terms of rates and in terms of benefits. And this seems like a good time to plug the fact that Climbable.org, in addition to many other grassroots communities in the Boston area and in the Providence area, are currently uh, developing a specifically low-income community microgrid, which is super awesome and which definitely supports uh, energy democracy in helping people in lower-income communities who, as you mentioned, A, are economically prohibited often from partaking in these and also um, are more left behind during a storm and outage event. It's helping them have this ability to use distributed generation, again, which is rather than a centralized power plant, distributing a large amount of energy to a large area, having um, smaller, quote, power plants, such as like a solar cell, um, distribute it to a local area. So it's super exciting stuff, and it's really, really cool to see, again, a county as big as L.A. County. Um, There seems to be kind of a perfect storm of state policies, of county and city policies, of entrepreneurial investment, and a desire for the actual people that live there to make all this stuff happen. So... What was the name of the report, the Synapse report, just so folks can look it up? Clean Energy for Los Angeles. It's on, it is on our website, and you can go to our, if you go to synapse-energy.com, you can click over to the Publications tab where we have a really great search function, and you can 
um, search for it directly. Also, oftentimes, if you type Synapse Energy and Clean Energy for Los Angeles into Google, it's... The magic... Turns out that's a pretty good search engine, too. Pretty amazing. Cool. Well, thanks, man. Awesome. Thanks, Andrew. A renewable-powered Los Angeles is clearly within reach, and the social, political, and economic path is set up for success. LA is already well on their way, and such a massive county transitioning to renewable energy will undoubtedly provide a comprehensive template to help other cities and counties follow their lead. With proper political leadership and social activism, we can transform our energy infrastructure in short order and bring about a cleaner, more sustainable future for everyone. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. We'll see you next time here at Behind the Switch.